0: Yeah, for some time we've been looking through the letter to 1 Timothy, albeit not very recently, so we're kind of going to get reacquainted uh, with the letter a little bit today. Uh, it's a letter written by Paul to his friend and co-worker Timothy, who was trying to sort out one giant mess of a church uh, in Ephesus. And so uh, Paul has been writing to him to encourage him, to instruct him and to help the church. And in, uh, in chapter 5, the focus is very much on on having kind of good relationships within the church. We saw that generally um, just at the beginning of the chapter last time around, and we're going to move on now uh, to consider what Paul has to say next in 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, verse 3, and I'm going to read through to verse 16. So find that if you have a Bible or a Bible app. If you don't, you can just look on the wall behind me and, uh, and follow the scripture there. Uh, so Paul writes, Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need but if a widow has children or grandchildren these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God the widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help but the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives Give the people these instructions too, so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry to have children to manage their homes and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Interesting, isn't it? Like a new chapter, chapter 5, all about kind of relationships within the life of the church. If you were writing a letter to a church today... How long would it take you to get to the subjects of how you treat widows? It may not be the kind of the first specific thing that you thought of, um, and, and perhaps therefore this reading a passage like this reminds us that when we're looking at the Bible, and when we're reading the Bible, we have to remember it was written thousands of miles away from where we are now, and thousands of years away from where we live, live now, and, and so culturally, we can read this and think, well, that's bizarre. Sometimes when you open up the Bible and you read something, it's like immediately you can access it, you can be nurtured by it, strengthened by it. Oh, that speaks right into my situation today. Uh, thank you, Lord, and other situations. You have to do a little bit more digging to see what the Word of God would bring to us and encourage us with, maybe sometimes challenge us with. It's not appropriate in those moments just to pass over and think I'll find something that kind of uh, more immediately speaks into my situation. Maybe this does very much speak into your uh, situation this morning or maybe you're sat down thinking well this isn't very rock and roll is it? I was hoping for something different today. Um, There is a lot for us to learn from here, a lot for us to be shaped by, encouraged by, even challenged by and so rather than kind of tune out this is a time to tune in what would God have us say and it's not our fault that we were born thousands of years later or thousands of miles away Uh, sometimes this can indicate areas where actually our culture has drifted from the bible or other ways in which it just highlights there's a big difference so what do we make of this passage what do we learn what principles should shape our lives and the lives of any New Testament church seeking to honor God's word. Uh, I'm going to tell you four things. Uh, And the first thing I'm going to say is I will probably dwell on the first thing for the longest. So if you're thinking I'm taking a while, don't worry, I'll speed up. Um, But What what is it? What what should we be learning here? What principles should shape our life? And, And actually, what's true about God? that Paul should first off, as it were, when he's getting into the particulars, really say quite a lot about widows. Well, firstly, what this does is show us God's compassion, God's heart, God's care. Yes, for absolutely everybody, but almost special attention, special care, special compassion uh, for, for people who've hit upon hard times. And we see God's heart not just in this passage of scripture but all the way through the Old Testament and the New uh, is a lot of emphasis on God's care for those in real need. We could go right back, we're going to look at quite a few scriptures, we won't kind of land on any one of them for very long but in order to kind of uh, demonstrate the point we're going to to go right through um, Different passages in the Bible, and and first off, we could look in Exodus chapter 22. Right at the point, we're having rescued God's people, the Israelites, from slavery. As I think someone prayed out about earlier on, God is laying down what's important, saying, "You're my people. I've rescued you. I've saved you from slavery. Here's what you're really to remember as you seek to build a new nation, as you seek to establish." God's kingdom, what's it to be like? Well, let me tell you, God is saying, in Exodus chapter 22 and, uh, and verse 22 as well, Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do, and they cry out to me, I'll certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless." Actually, um, what we see in just the verse before then as well is a, a note there about aliens. Do not mistreat an alien. It's not talking about people from another planet. It's talking about people from another nation, um, kind of strangers in your land, uh, not from around these parts, you might say. And, and you see this theme develop. God is highlighting his special care and compassion for the widow, for the orphan, and for the alien or for the stranger. It's not just here, it runs all the way through. And if you like, the thrust of what God is saying is remember who you are, remember your story, remember where you came from, remember how you were in slavery in Egypt and you cried out in desperation and I heard and I came to you, and I rescued you, and now you are are my people, you're in a new place, you're you're heading into a new land, and my blessing. Remember where you've come from. Remember what you've been on the receiving end of. Remember what I've done for you. Remember who I've made you to be. Remember that when you cried out, I heard. And so remember that when someone else cries out, I'm going to hear that as well. Therefore, don't take advantage of a widow or an orphan. Don't mistreat or oppress a stranger in your midst. Don't sideline them. Don't ignore them, because I, I'm not. It carries a bit of a warning, doesn't it? It carries a bit of a threat. But that's just demonstrating how much God cares for the vulnerable. It continues in, um, in Deuteronomy, there are many passages that we could turn to. He's going to turn to a couple in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 16, and verse 11, God still instructing his people, says, "And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place He will choose as a dwelling for His name." And they would then discover, with David's help, that that place was Jerusalem. Uh, so rejoice, you, your sons and daughters, your men servants and maid servants, the Levites in your towns, and the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows living among you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these instructions. You've got to like that, haven't you? God's saying, God gives instructions on how to have a party. God says, do it in Jerusalem. There'll be these big kind of festival seasons where the whole nation is to gather, and he's kind of making this deliberate point, everyone, all of you, sons and daughters, I suppose therefore, young and old, servants, the Levites, the priests, and then that trio again, aliens, the fatherless, and the widows, strangers, orphans, and widows living among you. When you get together and have a party, don't miss them out, they are invited this is not just for the wealthy this is not just for the well-off this is not just for the comfortable the secure and the sorted this my people is is to reflect my heart and my heart is for everyone and therefore when you rejoice remember the widows remember the orphans remember the aliens gather together and sometimes we can think, oh yeah, we're all together and not realise actually we've missed somebody out. Uh, there's a group of people who haven't been included. So God's care for uh, the less well-off is demonstrated right there. It goes further on as well. We can look in Deuteronomy chapter 24 um, and verse 17. Do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Maybe you would take the cloak of somebody else in a more wealthy and secure position as a pledge, but you're not to do it with a widow. Remember that you were, again, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. And then this, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Maybe people could otherwise be forgiven for thinking. Well, I sowed these crops. I bought the seed. I plowed the ground. I've cultivated it. I've watered it. I've nurtured it. I've been out in this field day in, day out for ages. Uh, I've gone and hired people to go and harvest it for me. I've rolled up my sleeves myself. This is my crop. I'm going to make sure that I gather everything that's due to me. This is my work. These are my resources. This is my field. This is all mine. It's easy for that kind of way of thinking to to come in. Well, this is what I've worked for. This is what I deserve. They haven't worked for it. They didn't sow. No, but you've got to remember them. They've got nothing. They're destitute. They have no means of support. The family have gone. There's no pensions. There's no benefits. There's no security. There's no national health service. There's, there's, no, there's nothing. Nothing like that at all. And they have no means of supporting themselves. You better remember them. And you better forget your sheaves and leave a bit behind. That's, that's the thrust of what God is saying. Right as his nation is developing, he wants that Compassion to be right at the heart of it. And he's always saying, Remember who you are, remember where you've come from, remember what you've received from me. I want that compassion to flow through you. Not kind of drift into this way of thinking, Well, all these things that God has blessed me with, I've really earned them. All the way, you know, this, the job that I've got, the house that I have, the resources at my disposal, it's because of my hard work. It's because of my good choices. It's because I knuckled down at school. I deserve it. So I'm going to make sure I get what's coming to me. So no, I'm going to make sure they get what's coming to me. I'm going to make sure that right in the fabric of society, God's kingdom is a means that no one's going without, especially those in great need. So you see it right through the scripture. We see examples of God using... And, and bringing dignity into the story and the lives of widows. We've got the story of Ruth and Naomi, both widows returning to God's promised land and God's community uh, in, desperate, in a desperate situation, desperate plight. And you see how God blesses them. You see how Boaz redeems and cares for them. You see how God weaves their story into the genealogy of Jesus, we see Elijah and Elisha, two prophets, both being sent by God. Go to that widow's house; uh, you're going to bless her. And they uh, uh, they raise uh, a dead son. They provide. They see supernatural breakthrough in the midst of helping people who are really poor. And then we see the prophets picking up the theme as the nation has drifted away from God, therefore they've forgotten who they are, they've forgotten their history, they've forgotten where they've come from, they've forgotten that it was God who brought all this blessing in the first place, and therefore they are forgetting the poor. We get the prophets picking up the theme with this challenge or rebuke uh, to them. Just We could go into loads of different places, but we're just going to turn to uh, Malachi, right at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi. Where is it? There. Chapter 3. And verse 5, God speaking through Malachi. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Um, They've drifted away from God. There's no fear of God in their midst anymore. They do as they please. And lo and behold, the most vulnerable members of society are therefore overlooked. God's saying, "I will be quick to deal with you on that day." Can you see that it's God means business? Uh, what's that flowing from? It's flowing from God's uh, God's compassion, God's care. And then we get to one Timothy. Chap- uh, sorry, we don't even get to one Timothy five. Uh, the early church. We're still on our little survey of the whole Bible. The No, actually, we're not even at the early church yet. We've got to go to Jesus. Right, Jesus. Jesus demonstrates God's heart, God's compassion. And again, we could turn to any number of places to see this, but why don't we go to to Luke's Gospel and chapter 7 and verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Now we could maybe identify with the grief, but can we identify with the despair that she must have felt? She has lost her husband. She has no obvious means of of financial Support or, or material provision. She does have a son, and, and then she'd be part, if he was of age, he, she would actually be part of his household and under her care. If not, she would return to her father. But look, she has, she's got no one when her only son dies. What's going to happen to her? What is life, what is she imagining? Maybe she's not imagining anything. She's caught up in the grief and the funeral procession. But she has an incredibly hard life ahead of her. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, what does it say? His heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. His heart, it, Jesus is stirred with compassion for this lady. He understands her situation. Then he went up and touched the coffin and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. And when we hear, when we read uh, uh, that kind of miracle, we can go, oh yeah, yeah. We just want to get into the supernatural. Oh, God, I pray that we'd see that here one day, that even someone might be raised from the dead, and we just kind of get excited by a supernatural happening. You think, wow. But that's like a financial miracle as well. That's a social miracle. You see, God's care is not just to go, ta-da, look at me, what I can do. Doesn't that reflect well on God? He's saying, look, it's, it's compassion that's driving this. They're seeing, they're seeing the supernatural because of compassion, I could see this massive crowd and just pick her out and see, see what the father was doing. And bless her in a profound way. We see it other ways. Jesus gives, gives dignity to widows. Even when he is teaching in uh, Luke chapter 18, tells the story or the parable of the persistent widow he's teaching his disciples how to pray and in effect he says when you pray be like her be like this persistent widow who's badgering some local judge for justice all the time be like that be like you see what what Jesus does is take the example of the most vulnerable in society and says copy her be like her even in how he teaches. And then he has pretty stern words for the teachers of the law. Chapter 20 and verse, uh, well, reading from verse 46, if I can find it again. Uh, While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows houses and for a show make lengthy prayers such men will be punished most severe, severely Jesus picks up the massive disconnect these men uh, in these important positions thought to be leaders religiously in the community actually just greedy greedy for other people's admiration They want to be seen, they want to be in the best clothes, they want to be in the best places. And whilst we don't know the detail of exactly what they were doing with widows' houses, Jesus puts it in really stark terms. That greed means they're preying on the most vulnerable. They are devouring the resources of the most needy in society, and Jesus has those fairly strong words you're supposed to be representing God but you're behaving like that that's abhorrent. the Lord is going to punish you we shouldn't shy away from from talk of judgment and it, God is just he cares it's the flip side of his compassion he's going to bring justice he's going to make sure so we see that in Jesus Jesus life and then we see that in the early church when the church is only just getting going, they don't ignore the issue and the needs of widows. So what do they have? They have all the teaching of the Old Testament, and they have the example of Jesus to go on. And they don't think, well, one day, generations into the future, we'll try and kind of uh, care for those who are less well off. Right at the beginning, it was a core component of who they were. It was a core Value and so when a problem develops in Acts chapter six, I don't just kind of like push it away. Oh, that's that's a side issue. One day we'll get round to helping the widows. Right now we've got more pressing matters. Don't bother us with that. Now we find out in Acts chapter six that um, there is a problem. In those days, it says in verse one, Acts chapter six. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Greek and Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food so the church has grown really rapidly really it's still quite small there's only a few thousand people on the planet who worship jesus as lord and savior Um, and right at the beginning then there are people in their midst with with profound needs for some of those widows it could be the case they have uh, given their lives to jesus they're following jesus they do have family but the family have now rejected them because they've turned to jesus and so they've got massive social needs in their group. They don't ignore that. They can't ignore it and they mustn't ignore it. Now, in a way, the apostles do have something to give themselves to. But what do they make sure? They make sure that seven people are appointed to make sure that the distribution of food to so the most needy amongst them is taken care of and is fair that no one is missing out. It could even be kind of racial tensions and prejudices coming out. The Hebraic Jews, uh, the the widows who've grown up in Israel, the Jews who've grown up in Israel, rather than those who've been scattered in other nations, they're getting preferential treatment. Well, they're maybe from Jerusalem. Maybe they, they know how things work. They're better connected. They're okay. The ones from out of town, the ones from another nation, being overlooked. I think God says... That can't happen. That must, for my people, for my church, for my people, it's got to be right there from the outset. This care, this compassion, the justice right at uh, the outset. That's when we then turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. That's the background. That's why, if you like, this is, one, this is something that Paul has to spend a lot of time Talking about this really, really matters. And it's a massive, massive issue. The widows were those who were uh, destitute with nothing. Like I said, no pension, no life insurance, no benefits. There was, there was nothing to call on. Um, uh, the government wasn't going to prop them up. They, they needed the church. Uh, and therefore, God wants his church to be thoroughly uh, compassionate, where everyone is included and genuinely at home, where being wealthy is not the key to having a sense of belonging. Well, I fit in around here because of my standing in life, because of my security, my financial position, or whatever it might be. The church is not to be just a collection of the strong, sorted, and secure looking for someone less fortunate themselves uh, to try to, to help in some way. And that's the remarkable thing about this passage. Paul isn't saying to a bunch of wealthy Christians, try and find some people who like, need your compassion. They must be out there somewhere. You know, right there in the church is like people from every, literally every walk of society. Honestly, there might be hidden needs in this room. But by and large, we are a collection of the wealthy and the more wealthy. We can can make it relative if you like, but in absolute terms, we're all really doing quite well. Forgive me if I don't know the particulars of your situation. Now, sometimes you might not, well, for many of you, for many of me, hmm, for us, we might not need persuading. Sometimes we do need persuading of God's compassion. We might not need persuading of how compassionate God is. We might not need persuading that the church should reflect that. We may be thinking to ourselves a worrying thought or a question. Maybe it's not a question. Maybe it's just more a thought to ourselves. Oh, no. There are so many needs. I should be doing more. Life is so busy, but I should be doing more. I've spotted another need. It must be me who meets it. Oh, no. And we can be overwhelmed. It can bring about a kind of guilty complex, a guilty motivation that's internalized. I'm not doing enough. Or it can be projected onto the church as though the church is just some institution or organization and think, actually, the, the, it's not me. I'm fine. I'm giving to charity. But the church should be doing more. The church is not doing enough. If only the church would. The church, I think is actually doing quite a lot. I'm not just talking about ours. I think often it is in the church that compassionate things, compassionate projects and programs are birthed and start flowing. That's how it should be. But behind both those ways of thinking can be a sense of just feeling a bit overwhelmed. What can we do? How can we do it? If I spot a need, is it, does it have to be me who deals with it? Am I just getting overrun? Maybe it challenges our priorities and the things that we are giving our time to. But there are, there are some things that are important for us to, to, to consider as well as compassion. It's not that Paul is saying, be compassionate, but just you know a little bit. Be compassionate, but don't get carried away. He's not saying that. He's not saying be compassionate, but don't get too involved. You know, just don't make it the big deal. He's not saying that. He's saying be really, really compassionate because God's really, really compassionate. And also be wise. God's wise. It's not like a battle between two things. It's not that you kind of think, I'll be a compassionate person. Ah, but I see your compassion and I appreciate your compassion, but actually it's important to be a little bit like me as well, which is wise. I'm wise. You're compassionate. You go do loads of stuff and get burnt out. I'll be cynical and not do much at all. We're not to have that kind of internal battle. It's like be really compassionate because God's really, really compassionate. And be wise because God is wise. Uh, And therefore, it's good to ask questions. Look, Paul here. Is writing a whole lot. He's not just saying there's this group called widows. So if anybody rocks up and says they're a widow, um, give them a salary and require nothing of them. That's that's the way to do Christian compassion. Ask no questions, just give everything you've got. No discernment, no thinking, no assessment. Just, oh, oh, someone else, right, I must go. It's not kind of saying bankrupt yourself. It's saying, be really compassionate. Don't just think by label. Sometimes we can just think, that's, that's it. The homeless. As though every homeless person has the same story. The same mix of reasons that led to them being homeless. That the same thing needs to happen in every, per, every homeless person's life. It's just a case of churning out a formula. Or every asylum seeker. If we, you know, If you read some newspapers, you think every asylum seeker should be sent away, or every asylum seeker should be um, kind of given a gold plated ferrari it, it's no there's there's a place for obviously real compassion, but then working out what is best what is this person's story and you see here we we've got so much detail to process it's not always entirely clear what the precise situation was but we can see from Paul that he's making some distinctions widows who are really in need widows who are left all alone in contrast with widows who have family who are in a position uh, to help there are widows who are uh, living for pleasure and there are widows who are devoted to God and praying and demonstrating good works. There, there are older widows, and there are younger widows. And Paul is saying, probably from the wisdom of experience, the, the younger widow might be pestering the church for money and might present herself as the one who's in need, but I've seen this time and time again, and it doesn't work out well. That's why I'm suggesting, that's why I'm saying, for the younger widow, there's a better path. Uh, ultimately that ultimately be better for her and for the church as well? So, it's not, care, it's not uncaring, he's coming, he's, he's discerning, he's encouraging Timothy to think it through uh, carefully and to make sure, therefore, that the church really is doing what's best for everyone in their midst and what's best with the real resources that they, they have. That it's not just kind of throwing money after a problem. I remember speaking to a friend, uh, Raju, uh, who leads a church in India, going to visit him and him saying something quite perceptive it was or or quite stark really from his perspective in a nation which is often on the receiving end of charitable donations big non-government organisations coming into a nation to distribute money and aid and so on uh, and even Christian ones attempting to support and he says "Well, the, the problem is he says a lot of people in the west give with their hearts they don't give with their heads they give from a distance, and perhaps the motivation is to appease that guilty feeling, and that sense of, well, I've actually got quite a lot, but they're not giving with their head, so a lot of the money just floats around, gets lost, dwindles away, it doesn't actually meet uh, the, the need it was given for, but at least the Western giver has appeased their conscience. It's a, not against any charities, but I think that's why i got a real enthusiasm kind of twin with other churches, where we get to know the people that we're involved with. We get to receive them and benefit from them when they come here. Uh, People like uh, Joseph and Lillian Mwila from from Zambia have been amongst us a number of times. We're at Devoted and we know Patrick and Michelle in a month or so are going to go and relocate to Zambia to be part of their mission. It's It's amazing. It's so impressive. A heart for God in Kitway, Zambia, has led a particular church to think we're going to run a couple of orphanages because there are so many kids on the street with nothing. We'll take them in. We'll provide. We'll take them through the education system. We'll support them and try and help them into independence. Why? Because God cares. God cares about orphans in Zambia. You think, wow, so amazing. And then a school gets built and Patrick and Michelle hear the call of God. And so they're going so Patrick can lead a school. Because the church has decided to best help these orphans and to help us to to care for more of them, we're going to start a school so that we can kind of be involved in in their education and help and support them in that way too. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it good to know then that if we're giving to uh, that particular situation, know exactly what it's going to? Because there's a relationship. And actually we're benefiting from, uh, from the wisdom and the insight and, uh, and all the blessing that Joseph and Lillian carry for us. And similar with things happening in India, it's just, it's good to know. It might be very, very focused, small scale, but it's having a real impact it's not just washing around some massive global charity not that i'm having a go at global charity i'm just saying look we the church is god's design this is what we're caught up in now, i'm not saying there aren't needs on the doorstep and there aren't needs in this room but there's something that should excite us about giving and receiving to other uh, other situations be that in africa be that in india be that in canada and uh, all the rest of it um I'll move on a little bit um, so, so asking ourselves what's the best way to help what are the key questions to ask to help us work out not just kind of falling prey to whatever expectations people have of you personally or whatever expectations people have of the church, the church should be doing more it's working out this is where the Lord is leading us I'm, and we'll leave it there for now compassion, discernment, another one just quickly, <laughs> uh, responsibility—the importance of responsibility. I wonder if Paul has to write this because there are lots of families in Ephesus thinking, "Thank goodness for the church—we don't have to care our, care for our elderly relatives." And so, time and time again, he's bringing this uh, this challenge um, in verse four. If a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and for, so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Verse 8, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 16, If any woman has, uh, who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so the church can help those who, widows who are really in need. In a nutshell... Our devotion to God should not mean setting aside a God-given responsibility to care. Oh, I'm worshipping God, I'm giving all my time to the church, I'm, that's where my money goes, that's what I'm doing. So sorry, folks, I, I don't have time for you. That's what Paul is challenging jesus challenged it too he said to the pharisees you've got a fine way of setting aside the word of god in favor for your traditions you say that if someone declares all their kind of giving corban devoted to the lord they don't have to provide anymore for their father or mother i think greedy pharisees and foolish people no god's given a responsibility now for us we've got to work that out sometimes for immediate family the need is not particularly financial you might have relatives that are very well off. Sometimes we, we know uh, there can be kind of emotional pressures that develop. You live far away now. I don't see as much as you if I would like. Um, we're a family. We always do this at Christmas. And it's, Well, Jesus resisted family control. But he honored his mum. He really honored his mum. He was on the cross and about to die. What's he thinking about? All that he's got to go through. And yet in the midst of all that Jesus was going through, in the moment of his crucifixion, he's thinking about his mum. And he's connecting her with his disciple that he loved. Say, it's your son. You're going to be part of his household now. Because I'm not here to care for you. And your husband isn't here to care for you. But right now, on the cross, Jesus is saying, I care about you. That's profound. It's not like passing the buck. Oh, John, you do it. Sometimes there's this subtle balance shift that takes place over the course of the years when you're growing up and you're doing your studies and you're going to university. You think, "Yeah, fantastic. Thank God for my parents because they're kind of supporting me and bailing me out. And the main flow of support is from them to me. And after a while, it kind of becomes like mutual, just supporting each other, and then it starts to shift a little bit more, to the main flow of support is from offspring to parent. And it says here, "That's pleasing to God. It pleases God. You please God when you honor your mum and dad." So Jesus spotted that hypocrisy in his own day and he challenged it. And if we want an example to follow of how to honour parents, I think we have it there profoundly in Jesus. The final thing to mention, uh, which I may have alluded to a little bit already, what should shape New Testament church life as we consider uh, those with the greatest needs amongst us and in our community? is dignity. Now we do wonder, what did this list entail? What did it mean to be enrolled on this list? You may read through this passage and and think, is it not a bit harsh? Is it not a bit ex- exploiting that they can be enrolled on a list? Maybe presumably that means that they're therefore going to be receiving financial benefits. Um, they've got to be over a certain age and uh, an assessment is being made of of their lifestyle and their uh, what they 're going to do, what, what's going to flow from this provision that they get, well, I think it sounds it sounds like they're almost having to is this some sort of slave labor? Are they, are being, are they being harshly treated? they're having to earn this support? What's the power balance here? But we could see it another way, not as something harsh. god 's heart's very, very clear. You're not to exploit or take advantage. But actually, those widows who were enrolled, as well as being given, provided for, they were also being given dignity. They were being given the opportunity to serve. They're not just being seen as an object for charity, but actually a powerful force for good in the life of the church. They may have fallen on hard times, but they have incredible skill, wisdom, resources, experience and understanding with which to serve this church community. It's actually the very opposite of being harsh or demeaning. It's being given an opportunity, um, dignified, not just on the receiving end, but contributing to the life of this church. Sometimes in churches, believers can be very keen to support those in need because it demonstrates their own strength. And if we have that attitude, we might be keen or we might feel guilty to, to try and do as much as we can to serve others and then find it really difficult to receive it um, from those that we've previously helped. It's, it's as though that we, we can think, I just want to maintain a slight glow of superiority, that you're the needy one and I'm the secure one. So... I'll serve. I've I've got to serve. No, 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 no. You don't. You don't make the tea. You don't do this. You don't do anything. Let let me do it. Let me do it. Um, I don't know that being a gospel community should lead us to making those kind of distinctions or creating labels. But actually, we've got to be willing and and ready to be served as well as to serve. We're all a mixed bag of strengths and weaknesses, things that we lack, things that we have. Serving one another is important. We want to be ready to serve, but also ready to be served. Maybe you're aware of so many needs. You're in danger of thinking that you personally have to meet all of them, and it becomes uh, a hard task. Maybe you just feel like, I, I, can, I can never ask for help, but I should feel, I feel like I'm always... I should always be there for other people. I don't know that the gospel leads us in that direction. Sometimes it's, uh, any one of us is saying, actually, I'm weak. I'm in need. Things aren't easy. Help. Whether or not that's necessarily financial support, but being together, being a body, means every member is included and honoured with dignity, responsibility to demonstrate God's Compassion.